Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Chances are at least half of the listeners to the show right now own a cat. Today, where we live, we're talking about cats. Whether you love them or hate them, cats impact our environment, especially if they're left to roam outdoors. Coming up, we'll hear from an author of a new book about the dangers of free-range cats, as he calls them. If you like cats and birds, you'll be interested in this conversation. And later, we'll hear about new research about the cat tongue. Is it really like sandpaper? We'll speak to a Ph.D. candidate at Georgia Tech about what she's discovered. And we definitely want to hear from you this hour. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Peter Mara is head of the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center and co-author of Cat Wars, The Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer. That's a title that you'll remember. He joins us today from NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. Peter, welcome to the show. Lucy, thanks for having me. So what led you to write this book? Well, you know, I study all different threats to birds and other wildlife. I study the impacts of habitat destruction and climate change, and and I've also studied the impacts of cats. And I, you know, write lots of scientific papers that don't see the light of day to the general public, and I felt like it was about time that we brought this story to the general public because cats pose a a much more significant threat to, to birds and wildlife and cats themselves than most people think. So let's talk about that research. You know, how many cats, um, you know, are actually here in the United States and what has been the impact? So <clears throat> let's first define different types of cats. There are there are cats that are owned by people that are either let outside or kept indoors. And, and there are somewhere around 80 million uh, cats that are that are considered owned cats. And about 60% of those, 50 to 60% of those are, are let outside. So we'll, we'll call it, you know, 40 to 50 million cats that are outside. Then there are the unowned cats, cats that are either part of colonies or are completely feral, which means they've got no dependence on humans whatsoever. And we think there are somewhere between, anywhere between, you know, 60 to 100 million unowned cats. Some of those might be purely feral. Some of those are are either part of colonies or live around uh, people's houses. So outdoors, we've got somewhere between, you know, 60 to 150 million cats in the United States alone. Why so many cats? Because uh, cats breed prolifically, uh, because it's been a really hard problem to get them all spayed and neutered, uh, because they can feed on wildlife, uh, and, and they do pretty well outside uh, for the most part. They do much better indoors, but, but um, they're an invasive species, so they, they spread uh, quite uh, commonly. Now, when you when you read your book, uh, Cat Wars, I mean, you often use the term free-ranging cats. So you're clumping together the feral and also the cats that people own, but they let them roam outdoors? Yeah. So a free-ranging cat or any free-ranging animal is an animal that's out of our control. So like dogs now, you know, we have to keep our dogs on a leash. So that would not be a free-ranging dog. A dog on a leash is a dog that's under human control. A cat that's just let outside, let to go wherever it wants, is, is free-ranging. 
And what do you say to cat owners? I mean, this book has been out for a few months now. I mean, what has been the response uh, uh, when you're talking about these free-range cats and uh, the threat they pose to other wildlife? So, so the cats, the, the response to the, the the cat book, Cat Wars, is is been all over the map. Um, actually, there's been some people that have been uh, really, really angered by it uh, because they feel really strongly that that cats don't have an impact. Um, and then there's people that just didn't know, didn't understand, and and that's the those are the people that I'm really trying to reach in in many ways with the book trying to educate them about, you know, the fact that these cats, when they go outside, they kill lots of birds, mammals, uh, if they're around reptiles, reptiles. And they also put themselves at risk. They can get hit by cars. They can pick up diseases. uh, And they spread diseases themselves. So in many cases, you know, lots of people, when they understand, they start to realize that, you know, it's about time that we treat cats like dogs, that we there's no, it doesn't make sense that we just let them outside uh, and not have them under our control. They're pets. They're domesticated animals. And so, you know, actually, I'm starting to see more people walk their cats on leashes. More people try to enrich cats' lives if they have them as pets. Um, so I think we've actually turned a corner. I'm speaking with Peter Mara, head of the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, co-author of a new book, Cat Wars, The Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. And Peter, you said that um, as people learn about the danger that cats uh, pose to uh, wildlife like birds, um, you think that there's some understanding about um, why these cats should not be allowed to roam. Do you really believe that, though? I mean, I know lots of people who um, have cats and they love birds, but they still let their, their cats out and they, and they occasionally will bring home, uh, or a few times, a dead bird or other a small critter. Um, I'm just curious um, if you think that message is really getting across to people. You know, I think it's getting across to some people. I think that there are people out there that just, it's in their blood. They think that cats have to be outside, have to roam free. It's okay for them to kill. But I, 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 completely disagree with that. I think that there are lots of other ecologists and conservation biologists, the vast majority, that completely agree with this this idea that cats are not supposed to be let outside. They're, they're a non-native species. They're a domesticated species, just like a cow, like a horse, like a golden retriever. Just because it's in their nature to kill doesn't mean we should let them go out and kill animals. It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And we have a, we have a responsibility to protect, protect our native species. And we're seeing massive declines in native species, not just in the United States, but across the globe. And we have to do all we can to minimize the impact that we have, that humans have, through our various means, like letting cats outside, um, as we possibly can. We, we have that responsibility. We have to protect native species. And that's what we have to do. You know, the numbers are astounding, but oftentimes uh, people kind of gloss over that, too. You know, in your book, you mention a story of the Stevens Island wren as an example of the kind of um, damage uh, free-ranging cats are capable of. Tell us about that. Sure. So the book starts out with the chapter. It's called The Obituary of a Stevens Island Wren. And and what happens happened in this situation is uh, um, um, a, a, quite a sad one. But in around 1894, the New Zealand Maritime uh, Agency decided that <clears throat> they needed to put a lighthouse on, on this small island because several ships had crashed, several hundred sailors had lost their lives. So they put a lighthouse out there and some lighthouse keepers to maintain the light. And those lighthouse keepers brought cats with them, one cat in particular whose name uh, may have been Tibbles. And uh, it may have been pregnant. There may have been multiple cats. But they bred and they quickly started bringing in dead birds to the lighthouse keepers. And one of these lighthouse keepers 
David Lyall was a naturalist, and he recognized the fact that the, some of the birds that were being brought in he had never seen before, and it turns out it was a new species called the Stevens Island Wren. And within a year, those cats on the, that island um, caused the extinction of that wren. And unfortunately, this was not the first case of this happening, and it was not the last case of this happening. And when we look back across the last 500 years or so, we can point to cats as causing the extinction of about 63 species of birds, mammals, and reptiles. That's tremendous. That's second only to rats. Um, so cats have caused the extinction of about 26 of the species of vertebrates on the planet. That's tremendous. Now, when we talk about cats causing the, um, you know, the devastation and extinction of, of these birds, well, what about habitat loss and deforestation, other invasive species? I mean, how, do you, how does that work into the extin- extinction of these, of these um, small uh, wildlife uh, beyond um, the cats being the cause? So these are all very important. Habitat destruction by far is the biggest threat that we face and climate change is and will be uh, uh, probably an equally significant uh, cause of extinctions to birds and other species uh, as habitat destruction. But cats are right up there. They're not as significant as those. But the way I look at this is um, we can't just focus on one issue. If, if doctors did that, they would focus on heart disease in, in men and ignore all other cancers. They would ignore AIDS, most diseases that still kill you know, millions of people around the country. As a conservation scientist, as a biologist, I need to look at all of the threats. And, you know, one of the reasons why we looked at and, and analyzed um, the overall mortality caused by cats uh, in our Nature Communications paper that came out a few years ago that we'll talk about, which pointed to cats as killing 2.4 billion birds a year, was to prioritize the different types of threats. So where do cats fall relative to wind turbines, relative to to um, buildings, etc.? And in that analysis, what I was able to show was that cats are responsible by far to the most mortality of any of these direct anthropogenic threats. And so, yeah, I work on habitat destruction. I'm trying to minimize that. Yes, I'm studying climate change, but I also have to have, you know, and understand and try to minimize the impacts that cats have as well. That's, that's, that's how I, I have to cover all of these bases. Now, you mentioned cats are invasive species? That's right. That's right. So when we talk about other invasive species, we talk about eradicating them. So how do you, um, I guess, propose dealing with these free-range cats? Well, so, you know, we, diff- different things have different approaches. And unfortunately, and, or fortunately, cats are also pets, and they're also valued by people in many ways. And so just going out and eradicating cats is not a reasonable solution by any means. And so what we propose is that, first of all, for own cats— we need to get, and that are let outside, we need to hold owners more responsible in these situations. And like I've said before, you know, we learned how to treat dogs properly and responsibly by keeping them on leashes, by, you know, vaccinating them against various diseases, by not letting them roam free. And we now, you know, minimize rabies is really, really rare in dogs now. The number of people that are bit by free-ranging dogs has gone on, down tremendously. The number of dogs that are killed by cars has also go down, gone down tremendously. We need to do, do the same thing with owned cats. It's, it, it just seems incredibly reasonable to me. For the unowned cats, we, need to, we can't just go out there and eradicate all of the unowned cats, and we're not proposing that. That's how it's been pitched by some of the cat advocates that have misinterpreted our book and, and have promoted that. 
In fact, what we are saying and what we do say in the book is that we need to figure out where cats, cat colonies, unknown cats, overlap with highly sensitive biodiversity areas in places like Hawaii or Jones Beach or places in Connecticut like Cape Hatteras or, or, or Lighthouse Point or, or Milford Point, some of these really important areas for birds and mammals. And in those areas, yeah, we have to have a zero-tolerance policy for cats there. In those areas, it's, we need to capture those cats. We need to try to adopt them out as much as possible, and that can be highly successful. In many cases, we can adopt out 50 60% of those cats. The ones that are remaining, <clears throat> they can be kept in sanctuaries if people want to keep them in sanctuaries. Or, unfortunately, Lucy, we, we really need to deal with this unfortunate reality, sad reality, of euthanasia. And there's no getting around it. And, you know, in our book, sticks, we stick our neck out there because it's, it's the inconvenient truth that we really need to discuss. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough birds and mammals and, and, and bio, safe, you know, biodiversity areas to maintain the cats that are out there. So there are going to be some cats that are going to have to be euthanized, and that's, that's, just the, that's just the sad reality of the situation. Sad reality, but that's a, a tough thing to stomach for uh, a country that values their pets, uh, whether they're indoors or outdoors. Um, you mentioned that you need a multi-pronged approach to deal with this, but when you mention euthanasia and the idea that free-range cats uh, should be killed because of the threat they pose to wildlife, I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of people that are on board with that. Actually, it's not true. <clears throat> and most responsible veterinarians would argue, as would groups like the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, as well as a lot of other wildlife conservation groups, that it's not safe for cats to be outside. I just saw a picture the other day, and I get these all the time from all over the world now, of where tra- cats are, are suffering inhumanely uh, by being let outside and just being left outside. There was a picture from Newburgh, uh, New York, where uh, there was a pool next to a feral cat colony. And the pool wasn't, there was, there was about a foot of water missing from the top level of the pool, and it had tile along the sides. There were a minimum of two or three dead cats that had drowned in that pool. That's, a, that's a, just another example of where cats are at risk. They, they really get hit by cars. They die horrible accidental deaths like in that pool situation. They get eaten by coyotes and other animals. It's, it's inhumane to leave cats outside. So when they leave cats outside... You know, it's either they're going to die that way, a horrible death, or they're going to be they're going to die through euthanasia, which can be done in a much more reasonable and comfortable way. We're getting a tweet from a listener before we had to break. Sean writes, "I grew up in the country. All of our dogs and cats, rabbits and cows, were outside." Um, so again, there's this mentality that animals uh, should and 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 should be able to live outside. How do we change that uh, mentality uh, when we hear about, as Peter Mara, author of of uh, cat wars, the devastating consequences of a cuddly killer, talks about the threat to uh, birds and other small wildlife. We're going to continue this conversation after the break. We want to hear from you. Can a cat be happy with a life strictly indoors? What do you think about Maris claims? 860-275-7266. This is where we live. With my tail in the air. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. According to the book Cat Wars, The Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer, quote, cats are opportunistic predators by nature. If given a chance to kill a bird or other small animal, most cats will take it. Author Peter Mara goes on to say, the fatalities add up to literally billions of amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals a year, which is enough to impact the well-being of whole species. Peter Mara joins us today from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. Uh, Peter, let's talk about how other countries have handled um, these free-range cats. Sure. So, you know, it's it's still a problem in a lot of countries. It, this is a global a global issue. In the UK, it's not as big of a problem with the unowned cats. It's a big problem with owned cats. In fact, UK is about the size of Alabama, and in the UK, they have about 9 million cats that are let outside. People feel strongly there that cats should go outside, despite the impacts. And it's funny, there have been some really interesting analyses where they've talked to people and shown people the more the dead birds that, that the cats have brought in. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, people just feel like it's in cats' nature. They should be able to do that, despite the fact that there's enormous evidence now in the U.K. that cats are causing the decline of several native species, which to me is a significant problem. Then there's countries like New Zealand and Australia, which have experienced significant numbers of extinctions due to cats. Cats are not native there at all. They're not native anywhere, right? In those cases, in those countries, they're now taking the cat issue by the horns. <laughs> and they're actually saying that by 2050, there will be no more free-ranging cats in either of those places. And they're doing, they are doing widespread uh, cat eradication in Australia of, of feral cats, and they're doing it in certain selected areas in New Zealand as well. Um, they've seen the problem, uh, and uh, that's the future that we're looking at if we don't take this more seriously. I want to take a call now. Greg's calling from Winstead. Greg, you're on the show. Oh, I guess Greg is not there. Let's go to uh, Liz from Willington. Liz, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to comment on... I can still hear a busy signal, though. All right. How about now, Liz? Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to... Uh, bring up the issue of the no-kill animal sheltering movement that has really taken hold in the past 10 years or so. Um, it, has, it has made such a huge difference in the number of feral cats out there. And I think it's made a, I think, um, I don't know if Mr. Mayor has addressed it in his book, but it certainly is a, an issue. Um, animal shelters have switched from being places where unwanted animals could go no matter what, and unfortunately a lot of them would have to be euthanized um, if no one would take them in and, and keep them as pets. But now it has switched so that feral cats have become socially acceptable in the animal sheltering movement, so you're seeing a lot more of these feral cats out there and a lot of suffering of feral cats, not only um, wildlife suffering but also the cats themselves. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, what do you think, Peter? She's ex Liz is exactly correct. The, the no-kill movement has had the unintended consequence of causing more suffering of cats outdoors. Because the no-kill shelters have to promote a 100% no-kill policy, they, are, they get saturated at a certain point. They can't keep taking in more and more animals. At some point, they turn them away. People have no place to go with these animals, so they abandon them. And cat abandonment is one of the biggest problems we have here because there are lots of colonies out there that are being fed. People see that there's a colony of cats being fed. They dump their cats there. And I've talked to plenty of people maintaining these colonies, and they, they agree that there's this enormous problem of people continuing to abandon their, their, their pets. But this whole movement of this no-kill 
philosophy has created a tremendous unintended problem that Liz points to. She's exactly correct. All right. Uh, Heather's calling from Cheshire. Heather, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I was just wanting to respond to the comment of, you know, have, can a cat have a healthy, happy life indoors um, as well as, or outdoors? Do I feel like they need to be outdoors? I've had both. I've had an indoor cat uh, when I was younger, lived a great life, but um, I would say maybe something was missing, but I was always of the philosophy cat should be indoors. It's safer. It's better. But then I kept this other cat and he, I couldn't keep him indoor if I wanted to. He was like, just wanted to be outdoors. And then he's lived this tremendous life. He's 16 years old. He goes in and out. We do it very responsibly. He's neutered. He's taken care of. He goes to the vet. We provide him food. But quite frankly, he's done us a tremendous service in mousing outside, getting the moles. Like, you know, he's a hunter and it's saved us. We don't have to use chemicals or traps. He's just He's been a tremendous cat, and his life was so much enriched because he was able to have that indoor-outdoor balance. All right, Heather, thank you for your call. And she brings up a point about how uh, cats, while they may be hunting for birds, they also get rid of some other critters that carry disease. What do you think, Peter? Well, those critters that carry disease, first of all, they really don't carry disease, um, disease diseases that you think they do. Um, those moles are native species that we have a responsibility to protect. Those, they're actually protected species, um, as are many of the other rodents, the majority of the rodents that those cats kill. Um, there are ways to enrich that cat's life that don't require letting the cat to just go outside and do as it wishes. Just like with dogs. You know, I have a dog, and I walk my dog twice a day. I, I throw a ball for my dog in a controlled setting. I exercise the dog. You know, we have to do the same thing with cats, and there are ways to do that. There are people that walk their cats on leashes. I mean, you're not going to get an aerobic, you know, workout with a cat on a leash for sure, but walking your cat on a leash is one way around that. Also, you know, in Oregon, there's been a real movement towards things called catios, which are basically screened-in enclosures where a cat can see things outside, be enriched, uh, and it can, you know, fulfill that need a bit more. It's just people have this idea that cats are, are not not an animal or a pet that require that much time or that much commitment. But we need to change that view. Cats do require commitment. They do require time. Uh, and we need to enrich them. I'm not suggesting they sit inside and get fat and happy. I'm suggesting that, you know, we probably do need to do a little bit more with the feather tour or the laser pointer or walk them on a leash. Now, I wanted to ask you about your uh, recommendations are on the trap and neuter release program. You know, a lot of advocates for cats think this is a, a good thing if a cat is feral, if it doesn't seem like it ever could be a pet or be indoors. Um, if they don't embrace the idea of eradicating, they think it's a smart way um, to curb the uh, wild cat population. Right. And so the truth of the matter is, is that there's very little evidence to suggest that the trap-neuter-return idea actually works. So, so this, is the, this is the idea behind TNR, just so most listeners understand it. The idea is that if you trap all the cats, you, you, you neuter them, you, you sterilize them, and you put them back outside and you feed them, and so you've got them in this colony setting, and you continue to feed them, that they can live that, that life and they will eventually die of so-called natural death, Right. The problem is this, is you, you've got to capture a minimum of 75 to 90% of the cats so the colony will eventually go to extinction. That is an incredibly hard thing to do. We've looked at the majority of papers that have actually studied this, and there aren't that many, 
granted, but the ones that have <clears throat> rarely find enough, really capture enough cats to get that neutering rate so the colony actually goes extinct. But the bigger problem is this cat abandonment. There's continual immigration into these colonies, so it's a very, very hard thing to maintain. So the colonies actually have the reversed effect of, in some cases, increasing or, st or staying stable. The other problem here is, of course, the cats are still out there for six, seven, ten years, causing damage to native ecosystems that we, we need to be protecting. And it's just not good for the cats. It's they, they, the way they die, the so-called natural attrition, is getting hit by a car, getting killed by a coyote, falling into a pool and drowning, getting disease. How is that a better way or a more so-called humane way of dying? I, I don't understand that. I really don't. And we haven't even gotten into the human health consequences of cats and what they do to humans. There, there are significant numbers of things here that we need to think about holistically when we address this, this dilemma. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Peter Mara, head of the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, co-author of a new book, Cat Wars, The Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, Peter. You know, what are some of the big takeaways? Obviously, uh, you don't ag agree with free-range cats, uh, threats to, the, to wildlife, but how do you get people on board with your message? Well, you know, there's a variety of ways to get people on board with our message, one of which is to continue to educate people about the values of biodiversity, uh, the values of promoting native ecosystems. Um, you know, we've manipulated and changed our habitats so much and our globe so much. <clears throat> what we really need to do is to try to restore these areas to what they once were. To uh, to and they're going to change, but have them change in a more uh, a natural natural way, and that means you know minimizing all the threats. And cats are one of the most significant threats to these areas. There's no simple solution here. There just isn't, and it's not going to happen overnight. And I don't think we're going to get rid of all cats out there. I just don't. But for me, the biggest priority is to try and you know remove the cats from areas where they really are interacting with highly sensitive biodiversity areas and that's something we have to have a zero tolerance policy for there's going to be other areas uh, where you know these cat colonies are not impacting wildlife in any significant way and that's going to have to be a lower lower uh, priority situation uh, but we need to maintain and manage those colonies properly which we currently aren't doing in the case of own cats you know, we really need to invest in our shelters uh, a bit more uh, and, and the promotion of educational and marketing materials to teach people about the dangers of letting their cats outside and about promoting how they can take care and enrich cats' lives rather than just letting them go outside and do as they wish. Again, Peter Mara, head of the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, co-author of Cat Wars, The Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer. He joined us today from NPR's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Peter, thanks for your time. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we're going to find out what more pet owners think about Mara's book and some of his recommendations. We'll find out after the break. First, if you appreciate this wide variety of conversations here on Where We Live, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support this show and WNPR. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at our website, WMPR.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, today we're talking cats. We just heard from author Pita Mara, whose book Cat Wars, 
Uh, the devastating consequences of a cuddly killer might be hard for some cat lovers to stomach. Now, we wanted to get reaction from a cat owner who has read parts of the book. I want to welcome Caroline Finnegan into the studio, and she has a little guest with us. Hi, Caroline. Hi there. So tell us about uh, our guest and some of the, your reaction to Peter's book. Well, in the studio with me here, we have Kim Chi, who is one of my foster cats. She is about four months old and is really quite a remarkable cat. She doesn't tend to get afraid of very much, so... I'm trying to leash train her and um, expose her to more things in the world because she gets bored in the apartment. Now, you foster cats. So these Mm -hmm. are cats that you find or that you are paired with from a a rescue organization? I have found two of the cats that I fostered, but um, I foster through protectors of animals. So kimchi came from them. Now, um, if... Kim Chi had not been found. She might have been a free-range cat, as Peter mm-hmm. Mara was uh, calling uh, animals that are, that are left as strays. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, tell me what you think of some of his uh, claims and also recommendations of dealing with uh, these cuddly killers, as he calls them. Um, I agree with part of it, um, and I don't agree with other parts. I think that something does have to be done about cats in areas where cats are not... Uh, anywhere near to being a natural predator, like New Zealand being a prime example with the ground-dwelling birds, um, and humans bringing cats in is really unfair to the bird population there. In your suburban neighborhoods and where there's house cats and things like that, I just don't think that that's a reasonable option. I do think the trap and release can work, and um, <clears throat> people just have to be educated. Mm-hmm. Now, he also um, said that the trap and uh, neuter release, mm-hmm. neuter spay release program, um, the evidence doesn't show that it works. You say that it does. Um, I don't have firm evidence to show it, but I don't think the evidence that shows that it doesn't work is particularly good either. I do think that more studies need to be done, and I think that more people need to pay attention. I think if we can get more people aware of the issue that more solutions can come from that. And I think that that's one of the good things about his book is that it is creating a lot of discussion and a lot of dialogue about something that's very real. Now, you foster cats. So Mm -hmm. I know people who have uh, adopted cats who have lived outside and they feel like, well, how do I keep this cat indoors if it's been used to being outdoors? And that's what leads them to let them roam uh, during the day or just for a few hours. I mean, what's your advice to people? I think it all depends on the cat. Um, I don't let my cats go outside. I live in an apartment in Hartford, so it's kind of hard to do that anyway. But even when I didn't, um, I prefer to keep them safe inside. I think that there's so many dangers for cats outside. But if you have brought in a cat off the street who has been accustomed to being outside, it is really, really hard to change that behavior. Mm -hmm. And it stresses the cat out. You can do a lot to enrich the behavior inside Uh, the environment inside of the cat. But really, at the end of the day, if that cat wants to get outside, cats are sneaky. They will (laughs) run under your feet. They'll get out there. And then it becomes a chase the cat, and then the cat runs, and it just creates, I think, more of a problem for the cat. So full disclosure, um, I was an owner of two cats. They have since passed. But I remember my veterinarian saying to me, you know, if you want your cat to have a long life, leave it indoors because of all of the dangers uh, that you had mentioned. Um, Is that something that you think people are picking up on? I hope so. I think so. Um, More and more people are seeing that cats can be happy indoors. Um, It's really a matter of putting in more effort and more time on the human's part. And so ways to stimulate your cat if you keep the cat indoors. Catios, tunnels, scratching posts. Catios are awesome. Um, And 
Tunnels also and kimchi is going rogue here. <laughs> Sorry. Hold on. She's trying to type to my producer right now. She's got a lot to say. Um, uh, cat tunnels. I go to Home Depot and I buy the concrete molding tubes and I have two different sized ones and I have those around the apartment. Um, changing the environment up so that they're not always seeing the same thing and doing the same thing also works. So I'll, mo- I'll have several scratching posts and I'll move those around. Um, but it really depends on the cats, like what what cats, what your particular cats might like. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I've been speaking with Caroline Finnegan, who's a Hartford resident. She fosters cats. She brought one of them here today, little Kim Chi. And we'll tweet some pictures out of Kim Chi um, on our Twitter handle, at where we live. But we're moving on to another cat-related topic, all about this very unusual cat tongue. And now, if a cat has ever licked you, you know this cat tongue feels a lot like sandpaper. There's actually research being done into the cat tongue. I want to welcome Alexis Noel to the show. She's a Ph.D. candidate in mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech. Alexis, welcome to where we live. Hi, good morning. So tell us about what made you decide to, to study the, the cat tongue. Well, I was home for the holidays, and uh, one of my cats was sitting on my lap, and he decided that the blanket I was under smelled quite tasty, so he decided to give it a good lick. Um, but that blanket was made of microfiber, so this blanket actually got stuck on his tongue, and he couldn't get it off. Um, and I thought it was quite hysterical, but um, the scientist in me started thinking, wait, why is this tongue getting stuck? Isn't it supposed to be just like sandpaper? Um, so I, when I got back to campus, I just studied, decided to uh, study the cat tongue. Now, how do you go about studying the cat tongue? <laughs> a lot of different ways. Um, so we got a, a tissue sample, and we were able to actually uh, take macro photography uh, images of the surface and put it under a microscope. Um, what we found was that the uh, tongue is actually covered in tiny little claws all over the surface uh, called papillae, uh, and they're, so they're, they're very sharp. They look just like the cat claws. So that's what's able to actually grab onto these little microfiber loops on the blanket. Did you say their, their tongue is, are made, is made up of little claws? Mm-hmm. Covered in tiny little claws, uh, if you were to zoom in very, very close. That's interesting. And so from there, where do you go in terms of, of studying the cat tongue and just practical applications to our everyday? So after we had characterized um, all of the components of the tissue itself and of those spines, I actually created a uh, mimic uh, using 3D printing, which is one of my hobbies. Uh, I actually created a 3D printed cat tongue mimic at four times the size. Uh, so we're able to take that mimic and test it in a bunch of different ways. Uh, primarily, we wanted to look at how, uh, how efficient it is at grooming fur and matted fur because, you know, cats spend about 50% of their waking time grooming themselves. So we took this mimic and created a so-called grooming machine where we had a piece of fake fur and we took this uh, 3D printed cat tongue and r- ran it through the fur um, and looked at how well it detangled. And it was actually surprisingly very good at detangling just because of the the shape and nature of the spines on the, the surface. And from there, you know, what again, what are some practical applications? Uh, you, know, you know, we were understanding that this might add some insight to the field of soft robotics. Absolutely. Um, there, there's a very wide range of different applications. Um, we actually just put a provisional patent on this technology, and we're looking uh, – Right now, we're looking at new types of cleaning, uh, like cleaning brushes for humans and for pets, but this may also have application in uh, wound cleaning advances in the biomedical field. 
um, or maybe new types of carpet cleaners. How do you get deeply embedded dirt out of your carpet? Um, all the way up to soft robotics, say, uh, new types of uh, grab soft deformable grabbing mechanisms for maybe getting rocks um, off of Mars. That's really interesting. I'm speaking with uh, um, Alexis uh, Noel, PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech. She's studying the cat tongue. Now, you started with uh, the, the domesticated cat tongue, I'm assuming. So where do you go from here in terms of, of their, their bigger cousins? Yes. So um, we actually just acquired a tiger tongue. Um, there was a very old tiger that had recent, had been recently deceased a few days ago. Um, so we'll, we will be looking at how um, these spines scale for larger cat families uh, to see if there's any uh, biological significance. So we're very excited to be looking at that in the next week. And then, um, you know, all of this uh, started by an observation you made with a, a cat and, and licking a blanket. Has this changed how you look at your cats? Oh, yes. I'm continuously looking at my cat trying to see if there's any other uh, amazing, like, mechanical things that are going on with the cat. I mean, everybody knows that uh, cats have the ability to jump from high heights. Uh, they have these retractable claws. They have very, very good sense of hearing. So I'm always on the lookout for new things to study with cats. And they're very efficient cleaners. You know, I, I had heard that cat mouths carry lots of bacteria. Is that something you're also studying? <laughs> The saliva itself, uh, yes, uh, we want to, but it's it's kind of hard to get a cat to spit in a cup for you. Um, <laughs> Swab, maybe. <laughs> so it's uh, it's definitely a work in progress. Uh, the saliva has people have thought that the saliva does carry um, uh, cleaning properties. Uh, so for wounds, it actually helps decontaminate wound areas for cats. Um, so that might be a future field of interest in the next year or so that we want to look into. Well, I want to thank Alexis Noel, Ph.D. candidate in mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech. Some really interesting research all about the cat tongue. Alexis, thank you for your time. We'll try to link to some of the the uh, background on your research on our website, uh, wmpr.org slash where we live. But we do appreciate your time. Thank you again. Thank you. And I wanted to turn back to our in-studio guest, Caroline Finnegan. You know, so for, for some final thoughts, uh, again, because you foster cats and for people who are maybe thinking about getting a cat, you know, what are, what are some of the best ways to, to, have, to own a, an, an animal like a cat? What are the best ways to own it or the best ways to find a cat? Find own? and own, yes. Um, my preference is always rescue cats. Um, there's a lot of really great rescue organizations in pretty much every state, and rescue cats are great. Um, if you are not one to spend a whole lot of time with cats, don't get a kitten. They require a lot of attention, a lot of stimulation, and um, I'm always an advocate for an older cat. I think that older cats are great. That's interesting. You say that cats deserve a lot of time and attention because there is the thought that cats are very low maintenance. So versus a dog, so you could go on vacation. Your cat's okay at home. Not not a good not a good idea. Um, I don't think with a kitten. No, mm -hmm. I think with an older cat, definitely they can um, adapt a little bit more. But that doesn't mean that you can just sort of ignore your cat all the time. Like they need a lot of in home stimulation, like the different types of scratching posts. Like some cats like to be up high. Some cats like to like have little nests and burrow. So create, you know, the best advice is to think of yourself as like what you would want to do if you were home all day without being able to go outside and do anything. Like what kind of spaces would you want? And then put that into a cat. <laughs> I've heard some cats do like to watch Netflix. I 
<laughs> never had a cat actually like to watch TV, but I've seen videos of it, and I wish that my cats would watch Netflix because I think that'd be hilarious. <laughs> and when people are looking for a cat, you know, I've also heard that uh, black cats are often um, the ones that are um, very few adopted. And yeah. why is that? I think that, that people think that they're mean, and it's completely wrong. Some of the best cats I've ever had have been black cats. I can attest to that. My Charlie yeah. was a, a black cat, lived 14 years, the sweetest mm-hmm. cat with a diesel purr. Oh, that's the best. <laughs> well, I want to thank you as well, Caroline. And any um, when we talk about trying to find a cat, you mentioned rescue. Any places online? Because I mean, people often will go to PetFinder.com. Yeah, pet, pet Finder's there, Protectors of Animals here in um, Connecticut. And the Humane Society is also great. Um, basically, do your research to your in your area. There's a lot of animal rescue groups, a lot. And did you ever try a catio? Um, I'm actually looking into building one, yes, because <laughs> I had my cat fall off the third floor. Oh, gosh. He was fine, but it was terrifying. And for our listeners who uh, may not have caught that uh, part of the conversation, that catio is an enclosed enclosure that you can build. Mm-hmm. So if you feel like your cat does need that stimulation, a catio could help get them outdoors, mm-hmm. but not um, threatened by a car or a predator. Yeah, or their own little peanut brains that want to go running after everything. Well, I want to thank you, Caroline Finnegan, again, a Hartford resident with a special guest, uh, again, Kim Chi. And I think we've uh, tweeted out a picture of Kim Chi. But we want to thank you for your time today talking about something that many of us enjoy, and that is our pets. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. And uh, our executive producer is Katie Tolarski, our technical producer, who helps make everything sound seamless, uh, Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And if you appreciate where we live in WNPR, here are two of my colleagues to remind you that it's listener support that makes it possible. <laughs>